The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. This week there's good news and not so good news for California's farmers when it comes to proposed reservoir projects as well as the state's almond growers. What's the future for cherries in California? A local farm advisor says the changing weather is going to have a serious impact. California's flower growers love Mother's Day. In fact, they love it more than Valentine's Day for a very good reason. We'll tell you why. It's a never-ending battle, drip irrigation systems versus rodents. We'll take a look at the strategies for combating this voracious farm pest. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Well, the California Water Commission set eligibility figures for projects applying for funding under Proposition 1, the $7.5 billion water bond approved by voters back in 2014. The good news? The Western Farm Press reports that the largest chunk by far is for the planned sites reservoir west of Maxwell in the Sacramento Valley. Based on its public benefits, the 300,000-acre-foot reservoir could receive as much as $1 billion, that according to a commission news release. The next largest potential chunk of money is $459 million for the Los Vaqueros Reservoir Expansion Project. That's in northeastern Contra Costa County. However, three of the 11 projects under review were deemed ineligible. The Centennial Water Supply Project in Placer County, the Pure Water San Diego Program, and the Tulare Lake Storage and Floodwater Protection Project in the eastern San Joaquin Valley. And the people that want to build Temperance Flat near Fresno didn't get very good news either. That planned $2.6 billion project was considered eligible by the Water Commission for only $171 million. And that perceived snub didn't sit well with U.S. Representative David Valdeo. He asserted that the panel's decision harmed Central Valley farms, families, and entire communities that lack access to a clean, reliable water supply. He told the Western Farm Press the commission's refusal to fund critical water infrastructure projects is unacceptable and that he'll continue to do everything in his power to ensure the completion of the Temperance Flat project. Nine months ago, some farmers were worried as the more rigorous pursuit of people who may be in the country illegally was causing an even worse shortage of labor on farms as workers basically were going into hiding. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue says in the last few months, the leaders of the various federal agencies involved in the immigration and labor situation have been communicating more with each other than in the past. We secretaries talk all the time. And Perdue told reporters in Colorado Monday. In the immigration and labor issues, it's equities with the Department of Labor, Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of State. But we have an equity in that also because we represent the people who use the and want to use legal farm labor. And I believe it's our responsibility to help develop a program where they can uh, have workers that are legal and they're comfortable not having to hide in the shadows. Some farmers have complained that the current program for finding and signing up farm workers is too complex, doesn't meet their needs, especially for non-seasonal year-round workers. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. The USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service recently did a survey calling almond growers throughout California to see how the 2018 almond crop is looking. The results? Forecasted yield is 2,150 pounds per acre. That's down 5.3% from the 
2017 yield of 2,270 pounds per acre. Now, why is that? Well, the 2018 California almond bloom began a few days earlier than normal. The bloom period was extended due to cold temperatures and lasted a few weeks. Frost during bloom hit the orchards hard, especially on the east side of the valley. Younger trees were impacted more severely than older trees. And weather during the spring was variable, leading many growers to be unsure about their 2018 crop. But there is some good news in that report from NASS. Forecasted production is 1.3% above last year's production of 2.27 billion pounds. Forecasted bearing acreage for 2018 is over a million acres. That's up from 940,000 bearing acres the previous year. The California almond community is committed to using everything the almond orchard grows. This report from the California Almond Board shows how research is underway to find innovative new uses of almond co-products, as well as to investigate how almond hulls and shells can be transformed to provide value to other industries. In terms of the almonds themselves, they're three in one, the kernel that we eat, then there's the hull and shell, and additionally, we actually have a fourth product in terms of the trees. The tree nuts produce uh, about 70% biomass that is, is not the kernel. So if you want to look at it that way, what we really do is grow other things. And I think part of this new future we're looking at right now is how to really you know, take those different products and their current uh, applications and uses and, and really uh, find a way to unleash new value and a new purpose. I think we need to come to a, a place where those are looked at as products in and of themselves. And that's a mindset issue, that's a market issue, that's an economic issue. There has to be innovation that comes in with our co-products. So each biomass source that we use is unique. Well, starting with the hulls, almond hulls have unique sugar, and we hope they could potentially be a food ingredient. We think that almond hulls can be used as a covering to grow mushrooms and improve the mushroom industry. The example we're working on for almond shells is to make them a plastic additive. So we would add almond shells to post-consumer recycled plastics to make them better. The big dream for almond shells would be an additive for car tires. And then we would have a domestic source of all the additives that you add to a tire. And almond shells can do that. One of the most exciting projects that we have ongoing, and I realize this maybe falls in the weird and wonderful category, but this is a reality in Europe, is that we are feeding almond hulls to insects. So we're getting into insect farming. And basically this then, you use the insects as animal feed for poultry. Well, I'm excited by making almond hull beer. So you can make beer out of almond hull sugar. So I'm personally excited to work with a brewery. Um, we also have tried it in formulations in nutraceutical bars. So make a fruit bar that does not have high fructose corn syrup, but rather has natural almond sugars. There's gonna come a point where farming's gonna get really cool. It's gonna be really sexy, right? Because the soil is a beautiful thing and it has the power to, uh, to really change the environment. It's mind-boggling in terms of what the possibilities are. Again, it's a research journey, so we don't know what's going to pan out. But uh, yeah, I'd say the future is bright in this area. 
In an ideal world, the California almond industry's goal should be zero waste in that um, we are able to find homes and fully utilize all of the almond biomass that we produce. Participating in that report from the California Almond Board included the board's Karen Lapsley and Richard Waycott, Rudy Crowley, he grows nuts and Nicholas, and from the USDA, Bill Orts. Here's this week's California crop report. Corn was planted as weather and soil conditions permitted in Tulare County. Ground prep continues for spring forage and row crops. Alfalfa fields continue to mature and are being harvested. Winter wheat and oats were cut, dried, and baled. Rice planting in the Sacramento Valley is ongoing. Vineyards continue to leaf out and progress into the early stages of flowering. Leaf removal was ongoing in some vineyards. Stone fruit orchards continue to leaf out as the bloom draws to a close. Immature fruit on early stone fruit varieties are being thinned. New orchards are being planted. Cherries are sizing well. Some early varieties are being harvested. Pomegranates, persimmons, olives, and kiwis were blooming. Kiwi pollen was being collected to be used to pollinate other blocks. The harvest of late variety navel oranges continues with some grading issues. Valencia oranges were harvested. Seedless mandarin groves remain netted for the bloom. Grapefruit harvest was wrapping up. Some citrus trees are being planted. The walnut and pistachio bloom is ongoing. Almonds are developing well. Almond and walnuts were irrigated. Pesticides and fungicides were applied to some almond groves. Weed control is ongoing. Broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, and lettuce continue to progress well in Monterey. Strawberry plantings progressed well in Tulare. Mature fruit is being picked. Greenhouse vegetables continue to be harvested. Fields are being prepped for summer vegetables in the Sacramento area. Rangeland and non-irrigated pastures were drying out in locations with south or west-facing slopes. Sheep grazed on retired cropland. Bees were active in citrus and olive groves. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. If you're a California flower grower or a wholesaler distributing those flowers, you love Mother's Day. In fact, you probably love Mother's Day more than you love Valentine's Day. How's that? Well, a Sacramento-based wholesaler, Alan Nishida, he's one of the co-owners of Flora Fresh, told the California Farm Bureau Federation why that is. Things that are popular for Mother's Day is almost anything. Peonies, lilac, viburnum, lilies, tulips. Uh, they're all plentiful. It's a good time to grow flowers. Uh, there's plenty of selection and variety. Uh, they'll take all kinds of colors. So it's, uh, it's a very busy holiday, but it's good in that respect that they're not just looking for red roses like they are for Valentine's. Visiting the growers, it's always a, a good thing. It's good to see the selection they have, uh, what's happening with them how the weather is affecting them. So uh, we try to build a good relationship with all of our California growers because without them, we wouldn't be uh, able to do what we do. Another source for fresh flowers locally grown, your local farmer's market. Rice planting is nearing completion in many areas. 83% complete nationally, ahead of average. 80% is the five-year average. Ahead of last year is 82%. That was USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. We now see uh, rice planting reaching or exceeding the 90% mark 
in Arkansas, the number one production state, as well as Louisiana and Texas. He says the only state that is lagging behind its normal planting pace is California. Rice emergence pretty much on par, 61% nationally, five-year average 63%, last year a little quicker at 72%. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Two major multilateral trade agreements are still on the table in Washington, NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement, and there's talk about rejoining TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. However, Jason Halfmeister, he's the trade counsel to the Agricultural Secretary, is giving one advantage of working out bilateral trade agreements. On a one-on-one basis, the U.S. can push other countries around. The appeal of those has been that a lot of times it's, it's easier for us to employ leverage. If it's just the mighty United States, the superpower of the modern era, the most attractive commercial market for other countries to, to try and enter. If we bring that to the table and we're sitting with another country, we can say, listen, we're going to dictate the terms here. If you want to deal with us, this is going to be the framework. So there's a lot of sense that it's just a, on a one-on-one conversation, we can use this leverage of being the big economic power in the conversation to frame the debate and, 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 I, and advance our, our preferences. Efforts to modernize and improve trade through the North American Free Trade Agreement, along with discussions with China, are continuing as U.S. agriculture seeks certainty. Negotiators are meeting this week in Washington, D.C. to discuss NAFTA and American Farm Bureau Federation Senior Director of Congressional Relations Dave Salmonson says negotiators must quickly conclude the talks regarding auto rules before moving on to other issues, including dairy. As is usual with trade negotiations, once the hardest issues get done, some of these other issues can move on and get settled, but they've got to get to it. So they're under some time pressure. Unless an agreement is basically concluded by the end of May, it's hard to see how it will have the amount of time necessary to go through all the processes required so there can be a vote in Congress by the end of this year. Meanwhile, the talks will continue with China next week as China and the U.S. seek a resolution to multiple trade issues which have sparked potential tariffs against U.S. agriculture. A U.S. delegation traveled to China last week and the talks will continue next week in the United States. As a result of that, will we then not have the need for tariffs? Or if the talks aren't all that successful, maybe tariffs and potential retaliation by China against U.S. ag products that may go ahead later this year. So a lot riding on these discussions between the U.S. and China. Farmers and ranchers need market certainty from both efforts, according to Salmonson. What we're looking at is certainty. The whole discussion of tariffs, whether from NAFTA, if that doesn't turn out well, and especially with China, the potential threat of retaliation. So we want trade to be much more certain on a basis where we know we'll have those markets open and farmers can count on that as an outlet for their crops. Michael Clements, Washington. The U.S. Trade Representative's Office Chief Ag Negotiator Greg Dowd earlier this year alluded to a new approach for our nation in the World Trade Organization when it comes to that body as a whole and specifically within the WTO's Committee on Agriculture. It is time to return to negotiation in order to use the system as a forum to further fairer and freer trade across the globe. And recently, an example of this strategy was presented by the U.S., requesting the first-ever WTO Committee on Agriculture counter-notification. The request involves India's market price support for wheat and rice over four consecutive marketing years, and U.S. claims of India under-reporting such supports during that time period. 
The question about Indian policy may come as a surprise to some, considering U.S. recognition of India as a growing export market for many of our nation's ag commodities. As Jason Halfmeister of USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service explains, India is a great place to look. There's a billion people in India. They have real production constraints in agriculture. They should be importing more food products. With India, the recent focus of USDA ag trade missions and visits by Undersecretary for Trade Ted McKitty. We have had many opportunities and real discussions for trade. Some of them are feeling out a sense of how you might do business for some who have not been here. Some have uh, advanced the ball and I think found new ways to perhaps enhance existing trade that they already have. Yet, as the Undersecretary acknowledges, There is the real perception, I would say, even in some cases, the reality of there being in existence a lot of trade barriers and tariffs. U.S. and India trade officials will meet on the market price support matter next month before the WTO Committee on Ag, with Ambassador Dowd saying the goal with this proceeding, and others like it, is Improve transparency. And Undersecretary McKinney gets the following impression based on previous meetings with Indian government officials and visits to that nation. We feel that commitment to change. We feel and have heard of that commitment toward an ease in doing business. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture at Washington, D.C. Farmers whose orchards and vineyards flooded during the heavy rains of 2017 are reporting mixed results as they monitor their land a year later. The California Farm Bureau Federation reports that one Sacramento County farmer who lost walnut trees due to a riverbank seepage issue says he has planted safflower on the land to help it recover before he plants new trees. A San Joaquin County farmer whose young almond trees drowned has replaced them with grapes. He says a mature vineyard that flooded appears to have recovered just fine. The second highest April 1st cattle feedlot inventory ever. That's what the USDA is reporting at 11.7 million head as of April 1st, up 7% from a year ago. In that 11.7 million inventory, more heifers, 4.2 million, up 14% from a year ago. USDA livestock analyst Shay O'Shagham says heifers are 35.7% of the entire inventory, 2% more than a year ago. That percentage of heifers on feed may be referred of some potential slowing in the expansion of the breeding herd. And for two good reasons. Dry conditions, relatively weak cattle prices going forward, which obviously works its way back down the chain to uh, feeder calf prices. Which have been running here recently about $145 a hundredweight down from 148 a year ago. We do expect to see those prices even come down further as we move into the into the mid part of the year, probably averaging in the high 130s during the third quarter. Which could make for more reasons to slow the herd expansion, but looking at the current situation for the industry as far as margins. It starts with the price you can get for the fed cattle and, and works its way backward. Right now we're looking at fed cattle prices uh, in the five areas that we normally track for steers of about $121. A year ago we were in the high $120 to $130 range this time of year. Uh, we do expect to see prices coming down uh, probably to somewhere around $110 a third quarter average. With an average price for the year probably around 117 It was 122 a year ago. This is certainly helping packers. Packer margins are actually counter-seasonally relatively strong. And normally this would be a period of time when the demand for wholesale choice cuts of beef tends to not be as strong just ahead of the period when retailers begin to buy for grilling season. But 
we are seeing some of those prices remaining relatively strong. Meanwhile, at the feedlots, Shale Shagam says those margins have been positive so far this year, but a lot of cattle were placed earlier in the year. The inventory's up to very high levels, as you heard. But obviously, as they begin to have to market some of these fed cattle at lower prices in the middle part of the year, their returns are likely going to be squeezed. they got to keep them moving out. So really, all of this seems to spell, if not a reversal of the herd expansion, at least a slowdown. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. A weather whipsaw. That's what many climatologists are predicting for the future of California's cherry-growing region, the Central Valley during bud and bloom stage. More atmospheric rivers, more wild swings in temperatures during the winter, a lack of chill hours. It all adds up to a questionable future for the state's cherry growers. That according to Sacramento County Farm Advisor Chuck Engels. It's predicted, as uh, recently predicted, that we'd have these precipitation whiplashes and uh, where drought alternates with intensely rainy winters. We're, we're going to, in the future, have more extremes and cherries unfortunately are predicted to not weather those very well because of their sensitivity to bloom time conditions and pre-bloom conditions. So it's going to be challenging for cherry growers. In 2018, an early February heat wave caused cherry trees to start bud break. A late February hard freeze set the trees back, reducing the number of available blossoms. Combined with a lower than usual chill hour total, as well as pummeling rains that left standing water in the orchards, California's cherry growers are not that optimistic about this spring's crop. You have probably heard of this technology, designed to improve plant and livestock characteristics, and perhaps wonder exactly what it is. So let's ask some in the farm and food industries how they describe gene editing. Gene editing, the way that we're looking at it, it's an evolution of breeding. Breeding is not static. You continue to learn more and more about plants, what makes it do what it does, how tall the corn plant is, how many ears. All of those factors come into better understanding of the genetics and better understanding of what parts of the gene code infer resistance to something, whether it's a pest or disease. That take is from Andy Levine of the American Sea Trade Association. And Dan Mosier of the American Angus Association adds, Some of the folks who work in this area call it precision crossbreeding, and I think that's an interesting way to think about it, that over time there's always natural selection occurring, and so some genes become more frequent or less frequent depending on selection pressure, whether that's imposed by human selection or natural selection. This is a way just to accelerate that and make a sequence that maybe is rare in the population but would become frequent with many generations of selection. We can make it frequent right away. Mosher brings up the point about the expediency gene editing technology provides in establishing genetic traits in a plant or animal, and how through genetic resistance that can help protect specific crops or livestock from being wiped out by disease or pest. And Luther Markhart of the American Sugar Alliance says in addition, speeding up the rate of genetic crossbreeding takes on a greater significance in the context of feeding a global population of over 9 billion people by the year 2050. Now you could accomplish the same thing if you had decades to do it, but we don't have that kind of time. When you've got changes in the environment, those kinds of things, you've got to be able to have that technology that will really give consumers healthy food at reasonable prices and be able to speed up the ability to make advances in those varieties. 
And as Andy Levine and Dan Mosier note, just like crossbreeding, gene editing involves like species to enhance particular traits. Most crops today, we're able to go in and use wild relatives in the characteristics within that wild relative to bring in specific characteristics to help with flavor, resistance, shorter production window, those things that farmers are looking for today. In the cases that we're looking at, they would all be sequences from other beef cattle or dairy cattle. It's not something that's trans-species. It's something that's naturally occurring in the population already. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A priority for the American Farm Bureau Federation, access to quality rural broadband is critical to support modern farm technologies. Zach Honeycutt, a Farm Bureau member from Nebraska, took part in a White House meeting Thursday on technology and business and says farmers need quality rural broadband to support their operations. The FCC defines broadband speeds as 25 megabits per second download, 3 megabits per second upload. The technology we're trying to use that's nowhere near adequate, we're using lots of photos and videos and trying to transmit lots of data to understand what's going on on our farms better, those speeds aren't anywhere near what we need. Technology is already advanced to allow farmers to capture their work in the field, but with slow or no broadband connections, there is no way to connect outside the farm for expertise. We would be able to be capturing video constantly from what we're doing, capturing pictures constantly from what we're doing, but we wouldn't have any way to have those analyzed or do anything other than just with what we have from at our home. Being able to access cloud services, being able to access uh, expertise off the farm just isn't, isn't an option with very big files. It creates a hurdle for analyzing the information we're able to capture. As agriculture technologies advance, Honeycutt says farmers and ranchers need access to quality broadband. As technology improves and improves, you're going to be able to pick out individual weeds out in fields and be able to scout for diseases. Obviously, we can do that now, but we can do it better with technology. But until we have ways to really move that data around in a quick and efficient manner, we're pretty limited in what we can do from that standpoint. Michael Clements, Washington. Funds will soon be available to expedite the purchase and use of cleaner agricultural equipment. This will help farmers reduce their exposure to harmful diesel exhaust, as well as improving local air quality and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That's according to the California Air Resources Board. It's called Funding Agricultural Replacement Measures for Emission Reductions, with the clever acronym FARMER. This program provides $135 million for farmers to acquire cleaner, heavy-duty trucks, harvesting equipment, agricultural pump engines, tractors, and other equipment used in agricultural operations. The funds will become available this summer, and they'll be administered through the California's regional air districts. Because the San Joaquin Valley has the vast majority of California's agricultural operations and experiences the greatest negative health impacts from agricultural emissions, something like 80% of the funding, that's about $108 million, will be distributed by the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District to farmers in the region. And now, a show about alfalfa. Oh, no, no, not that Alfalfa, who was a character in the old Little Rascals films who sang terribly, but the joke was the kids thought he was great. They had respect for him. 
I don't know why, but anyway, we are talking about alfalfa the crop, and indeed many of the estimated 250,000 producers who grow and sell alfalfa may feel a lot like classic comic Rodney Dangerfield always felt. We really do need to have more attention for this crop. <laughs> That's Beth Nelson, president of the National Alfalfa and Forage Alliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And it's true, when most people in agriculture talk about the big five crops in terms of value, they list in order corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, and rice. And yet alfalfa is actually the third largest in terms of value. Um, it goes corn, soybean, alfalfa, wheat, and, and rice. So why is alfalfa left out? There may be a couple of reasons. One, it's not one of the so-called Farm Bill program crops, which have major safety net programs that get debated every five years when the bill comes up for renewal. Also, Beth Nelson says traditionally, livestock producers grew alfalfa mostly for their own use, but... In the last decade or so, you've seen a big movement to commercial alfalfa producers. And according to USDA numbers for last year, alfalfa sales brought over $9 billion. Wheat was down at $8 billion. But again, most people don't realize how big a role alfalfa plays in the U.S. ag sector, not just in dollar value, but according to Beth Nelson. Alfalfa is actually one of the more sustainable crops. Um, Its value for soil conservation and nitrogen fixation is really unsurpassed by any of these other crops that we're talking about. But again, generally, people don't seem to know what's been going on with alfalfa. That's one reason Beth Nelson says alfalfa has not been getting its due as far as research dollars. Alfalfa gets yearly about $4.7 million in federally supported research money. Wheat, 10 times that at $47 million. So it really pales in comparison. Now that may change, though. Alfalfa in 2017 finally got a checkoff program where producers voluntarily kick in money for research and promotion efforts. So Beth Nelson says we'll be hearing more about alfalfa because alfalfa has a lot to sing about. Oh, no. No, not that. Not, not, oh, not that alfalfa. In Washington, Carrie Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. There you are. Rodent damage to subsurface drip lines is very common in our area, especially Yolo and Solano counties. Cracking clay soil creates excellent habitat for mice and voles, looking for cover from predators, as well as maybe a free lunch in the form of prematurely shattered wheat grain. Small rodents that gain access to the drip lines as the soils dry out and shrink can end up costing farmers a lot of time and money in the form of repairs before they can put in their next crop. Research is ongoing in that area to maybe figure out a way to protect subsurface drip irrigation from rodents. Conducting that research, and it's ongoing research, is Conrad Matavius. He is the UC Cooperative Extension Agronomy Advisor for Sacramento, Solano, and Yolo counties. And Conrad, we're talking rodents here and not gophers, correct? Yeah, that's right. Usually we're going to consider them uh, small rodents, uh, mice or voles. And uh, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure which one is more of a culprit in this whole situation, but yeah. Are, are squirrels exempt from this conversation? Squirrels are exempt from this conversation from what I know because they typically aren't going to be, uh, you, you'd notice their burrows, you'd notice their, their impact. Which sort of fields are is this most commonly happening in? So um, as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, this, is, uh, this is related to the cracking clays, and so there's a geographic uh, component that goes with this, and depending on where those soils originated and the type of mineralogy they have, they're going to be more likely to crack open. When you have a combination of the cracking soils with 
a crop that requires a dry down, uh, such as wheat or sunflower in particular, because when that when that soil is then allowed to crack, that's when we think some of this is happening. What are they going after? Is it water or something else? We had to kind of think about a lot of this when we were setting this up, and, and some of the wildlife specialists, Roger Baldwin at UCANR, is under the impression that, you know, they, they get a lot of their water just from their food, like from whether insects or or little roots or uh, whatever they can find under the ground, and also the wheat has some moisture in it. Um, they don't really require standing water. So we think the reason they're going down there is because there's a source of food, one, uh, but that it also provides a little bit of shelter from predators like raptors or whatever. Um, it's huge. You can imagine, put yourself in the, in the mouse's head, you know, being a little crevasse, uh, and having like wheat to eat would be a fairly pretty nice environment. So I think that's the driver that's put, that's getting them down there. The drip line is kind of a different story. And I, we think that they, they just, they need to chew on things, they need to gnaw on things. And when you have a drip line that's kind of running right through the soil there, if they come in contact with it, they're going to investigate, they're going to nibble on it. And then they're going to want to tunnel and find the least, the path of least resistance. And those drip lines often make a, a nice little perfect tunnel for them anyway. So they can kind of just chew their way through that. And, and then they've got access to wherever they, they want to go next. Have you noticed any preference as far as the rodents go for the brand of drip line? Is one more susceptible than another? <laughs> um, not entirely sure on that. I think, so one thing I can say, and it's nothing to do with brands, is that there have been other studies that we looked at to kind of approaching this that, uh, that nothing that I did, but it, there, was a, there was a study that was done at the International University in Florida that looked at drip tape gauge and the actual wall, uh, the gauge of the wall, and the thicker the thicker lines at some point, and they were saying the 17 millimeter stuff, was when you were no longer seeing small rodent damage. Rats were still getting through it, gophers were still getting through it, but small rodents weren't really getting through it. We haven't replicated that here, and we could be dealing with slightly different species and, and, and kind of classes of rodents, and so I wouldn't. that's not something we've tested in these conditions yet either, um, but that is something that if we talk about just the drip tape itself, I think that might be one possible avenue to, to, to explore in future experiments. Well, that raises a good question. Are we talking about drip tubing or drip tape here? Yeah, um, it's the subsurface drip tape that you would have it is really what we're seeing. And I, I think that the, the experiment in Florida, um, my assumption is they went to 17 millimeter, it's more of a drip tubing, but they were down to a four millimeter as well, which is a fairly thin wall. Um, that wasn't getting as much attention from the or was having actually there was more damage in those those lines. On your research, are you going to be comparing uh, drip tape with drip tubing? Not yet. Um, so right now, the the main point in in the research is to try and what we've done is is we've kind of created extreme conditions where we've added water uh, just to test this hypothesis that when you have tomatoes in the field or you know in, in the previous year. The damage that came back in the spring wasn't nearly as bad, right? Uh, if you had, as opposed to finishing off the year in wheat or sunflower, you come back and do your repairs. It's a mess. There's a lot of, there's a lot of leaks and stuff that need to be fixed. That drew, that kind of gives me the thought, well, what's the difference? And I think one of the main differences is that the soil is sealed up. And if those cracks aren't there or perhaps aren't as big in the tomato crop or because it's always wet, you know, there's kind of just a little more moisture underneath. Maybe that's stopping the rodents from going down there for some reason. That leads me, that led us to design this experiment 
and kind of an extreme version of that in wheat where the grower was very generous and just gave us uh, some access to one of their wheat fields. And we cut off some of the lines uh, early in the season and let them dry down normally, kind of like in a rain-fed system almost. Uh, I think they might have had one or two irrigations before. But then, so around soft dough, we, we shut them off. But then the other ones, uh, we made, they, they would pulse irrigate once a week. And we'll see how it ends up. Um, but the idea is that we could create an extreme difference of conditions. And so if there is a difference, and the way the experiment is set up, it's scientifically replicable and relevant and all that. We'll have statistical data that says, like, okay, there is a difference. If it's wet, you know, under the in the, in, uh, in the soil profile, they're less likely to go in there. If it's dry, they're a little more likely to get in there and cause damage. That We'll see how that comes out. I'm not entirely sure how that's going to work. So the idea here is uh, if mice and voles aren't doing as much damage to drip lines and soils that don't crack, then creating a sealed condition around the drip line and soils that do crack might provide some level of protection. That's the hope, yeah. And um, but, and there is there is a doubt. You know, I do have a doubt because we have I have there's been anecdotal evidence that that wasn't the case, right? Where they've tried things at some of the there was a at the research station. Uh, just in one of the fields, one of the guys was just trying to figure it out. And it was, but it wasn't a replicated trial. It was just an observation and, um, kind of said, well, there's still a lot of damage. But whether or not we could say, like, was there more damage than a regular year or was this just like a huge rodent population and they got it, you know, it's just like the volume of rodents was like what created that damage. So we're trying to get a hold on that as well. So that's the other side of the coin that gives me pause. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah, that is, you're correct. That is the idea. And since all farming is local and heavens knows how many different types of, uh, clay soils there might be in our area, have you noticed, uh, what percentage clay content, uh, may be most, uh, conducive to rodent damage? Growers who are on this land, uh, or perhaps looking to lease this land will probably recognize that there are soils that crack more than others. And the series, if you look on the UC Soil Web, if you look that up online, UC Soil Web, there's a, there's a whole, there's the old, all the old NRCS and USDA maps that they, that they put together, uh, quite a while ago. But those are still really great points of reference. The main culprits we're looking at in terms of the series name for the soil are the series like, like Brentwood, Cape and, uh, Rincon. And those, those tend to have, and it's not really a content of clay that does it. It's a content of clay. They have to have, you know, say 30 or 40% clay. Um, but then also a certain type of clay, which is, so it's a mineralogy issue is because we could get into that. We could nerd out on the soil side of things, but essentially these are, these are middle-aged clays. Um, older clays or younger clays will behave differently in terms of how they take on water and expand and contract. But it's that expanding and contracting of this particular stage in the degradation of these soils that causes those cracks to form. What is the timeline for your research? So hopefully we'll have some data because really what the the treatments are the water or no water, <laughs> uh, you know, dry and wet. And and then what I'll be measuring at the end of the season is going to be damage. And so literally we're going to be looking at count, like how many holes did we have to plug in these in these lines as we go up and you know, turn the water on and off, turn the water on and off. And then also trying to identify, was this from a disc damage uh, or like a plow or like where it was kind of shallow? Or is this from rodents or is this a gopher that just went through it? And so if we can kind of identify 
what they were doing. We'll just, you know, tally that up and that, that'll be the end of the season. So that'll probably be kind of depends on when the grower wants to go and fix all their lines, but I'm guessing sometime in the spring before we actually get everything compiled. So if some grower listening to this may want to try it on their own uh, and try some pulse irrigating, what advice would you have for them? <laughs> I would, um, boy, yeah, I wouldn't want to make any recommendations just yet. I think uh, the only crop you could still do it in would be sunflower. The main things that I would look at, though, is if they did want to try that, I would say try it on a really small plot that you can control, right? Uh, start small, like anything else that you're experimenting with, start small. And then take and then take records too. Like when you go back out there with the crews, like take records and write it down. But also keep in mind too that on any of these before you harvest, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to dry the soil out a little bit to be able to get access to it, or at least you're gonna need to stay in the furrows so you don't compact your lines or compact your soil. So that's just a few things to keep in mind. Sure, turning off the water with enough time to dry it out a little bit so you can get on there safely, and then also um, staying in the furrows when you're actually driving. We are actually harvesting. Yeah, it's a very good point that uh, driving over those beds could cause soil compaction and, and pinch off the drip lines. That, that can cause its own set of problems. So, yeah, that's something I would definitely caution growers to, to think about. Are you experimenting with different depths for the drip tape? Right now, the drip tape that we, we just kind of are working right now to create this observational, or this not observational, but this just kind of a proof of concept trial. And so we kind of work with what we have to. And right now, it's a fairly shallow drip system, probably about eight inches deep. It would be nice, though, to see that. That is another element that I want to try and control for and look at. And once we get this proof of concept down, then I can apply for grants and some funding to really set up a really deliberate experiment where we look at depth of the drip line, where we look at the thickness of the drip tape or the drip tubing, and then... uh also trap for rodents and stuff to confirm the presence or absence of rodent populations because that's another thing we can't control. Are there even rodents out there right now? I'm not sure. It seems like a nice environment, but if you know they have to come from somewhere typically. That's kind of a factor that we can't control. So this is ongoing research, rodents versus drip tape. And if you want to read more about the research that Conrad Matavius is conducting, go to the Sacramento Valley Field Crops newsletter for June 2017, put out by UCANR, and you can get some more of the details. Conrad Matavius, UC Cooperative Extension Agronomy Advisor for Sacramento, Solano, and Yolo Counties. Thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, including me. And if any growers have questions, um, feel free to reach out to me at the UC Cooperative Extension office. I'm located in Woodland. Or alternatively, yeah, check out the uh, Sacramento Valley Field Crops blog. And then you can put in your email and, and uh, verify your subscription. And then you'll get updates whenever I post anything in there. So there's a couple ways to get in touch with me if you have questions. Uh, but thank you for giving me the time to, to, to talk about this. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour, heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.